0: All right, guys. Pastor Nate just informed me that the winners of the tug of war, he'd like to start serving on the safety team on Sundays. So, security detail. We will forgo the background checks. We'll just get you guys in there. It's going to be totally fine. Wow, that was awesome. Well done. I, I broke a sweat just watching it. It was uh, Now it's starting to smell like a men's conference in here. This is good. This is good. Hey, um, guys, I, I want to jump in. Um, we've got just two more sessions, so I'm going to share out of Hebrews chapter 10. if you want to go there in your Bible, it'd be great. And then Zach is going to close us out uh, after this session uh, before we get into lunch, so Man, what a sweet time it's been, guys. Just so good to be together. So thankful for it. The Lord's already spoken. I believe he wants to speak to us here now. I want to read um, verses 19 through 25, but our focus is really going to be on verses 22 through 25. So Hebrews 10, 19, let's read it. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much for these men. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing and what you're stirring in our hearts. Lord, we ask now that you would stir our affections for you. Lord, that you would further center our lives around the work of Jesus and what he's done and what he wants to do in our lives and in this world. So Lord, we invite you here. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of my message is The All-In Man. The All-In Man. You you may know that this phrase, all-in, it comes from the world of poker, doesn't it? It's the term that describes someone that pushes all their chips into the middle. They bet it all. They lay it all on the line, and they're really going for it. But this term has come to kind of take on another life with our common vernacular, it just kind of refers to someone who's without reservation, without qualification, fully committed. They're not looking back. They are all in. And when I think of someone that's an example of a man who is all in, I think, of course, of that librarian, Graham Barker. Have you heard of him? (laughs) Barker has the Guinness Book of World Record Forget this, collecting belly button lint. you got to hear about this man and how all-in he's been on this endeavor. He has saved 22.1 grams of lint, approximately 0.7 ounces every day for 26 years. The 45-year-old plucks the fluff while he waits for his shower to warm up. The color depends on what towel Graham uses. Graham first began his record-breaking collection when he was bored one evening. He says, I quote, "...I noticed the lint in my navel and became curious as to how much of it one person can produce." I decided the only way to find out was to collect it for a while and see. I had an empty film canister with me, which became a perfect receptacle. That's all there was to it. No obsession or grand plan, just simple curiosity. No, Graham, you were all in, bro. You you went for it. Graham said the amount of fluff he collects each day depends on what clothes he's been wearing, with thermal underwear being the most productive. So take note, men. Thermal underwear. He added, I found that having a shower tends to wash away lint, so the logical time to collect is just before getting in the shower each evening. The daily harvests are stored in a little clay pot specifically made for collecting navel lint. Did you know those exist? I didn't. And at the end of each year, the small amount is added to his main collection. Man, that guy is all in. That is an all-in guy. Now, I don't know how many of us are going to be able to aspire to such great heights, as Graham Barker, and I hope your hobbies look different than Graham's, but we probably all know a guy, or maybe you are that guy that is all in on something. We go around the room and we shared, you know, what is it that you're all in on? Maybe it's your hobbies. Maybe it's the sports team that you follow. Maybe it's your cars or, you know, your career or, you know, it could be all kinds of different things because as men, we like to be all in on certain things. Now, oftentimes the problem is we choose to be all in on things that maybe we shouldn't be all in on. So for our time, I want to talk about what the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage these Jewish Christians to be. They're to be all in for Jesus, that he is presenting before them a beautiful just display of who Christ is and the work that he has accomplished for them, that Jesus is better than anything that's come before. And he's inviting them, be all in on Jesus. Be all in on what he's done. Be all in on the work that he wants to accomplish in and through your life. Whether that's in the realm of our relationships. Whether it's in our our, our purity, our sexuality. Whether it's in our witness to the outside world. To be all in on what Jesus has for my life. Now, I know you guys are nailing this 100% of the time. So, I'm just going to close in prayer. We'll just move now, that's why we're here, though, to be reminded, to be stirred up, as the Scripture says. His call for us as men is to not settle for a secular vision of manhood, but to embrace a life that is dedicated and running after the things he has for us. Maybe you've heard it said that there are too many Christians walking around with just enough of Jesus to not be satisfied with the world, but not, or in just enough of the world to not be satisfied with Jesus. Let it not be said of us, men. Let us be all in on Jesus. So here in our passage, we have three exhortations. They each start with the words, let us. There's a communal language to this, which I love. It's not something that is just for you and in your individual life. This writer is speaking to us collectively as brothers, as the body of Christ, to run after with all of our heart, not holding anything back, To push our chips into the middle of the table and say, Jesus, I'm all in on you. But what I want to see, too, is that there were really, as I read, as I see in these Jewish believers, there were three big kind of sicknesses that were coming in, that were trying to creep in, that were trying to hold them back from being all in. These viruses or these poisons, I think, are things that us as men face and experience as well that that try to hold us back from being all in for Jesus. So what I want to do is I want to recognize what are the three things that this early church was facing or this early group of believers, and and what are the things we're facing, and what are the antidotes to those things? What's the shot in the arm that we can get? What is the remedy for these sicknesses? So we're going to look at each one of these and hopefully be encouraged in our walk today. The first sickness that I see was catching the Jewish Christians. The first tactic the enemy was using to try to hold them back from being all in was distraction. Distraction. You see, ultimately, what was happening is they were distracted away from the person of Jesus. This letter was written to Jewish Christians who had left Judaism. They were putting their faith and trust in Jesus as Messiah, the, the great high priest who accomplished for them what they couldn't accomplish through the sacrifices, through the rituals, through their religious practices. They discovered the beauty of the gospel and they found freedom in Christ. They were coming to realize that Jesus did the heavy lifting in order that they might live as surrendered lives to him. But something was happening. As they were experiencing peace and freedom in Christ, persecution started to seep in. They started to be attacked by the world. They were going through pretty heavy trials and and looking at what their stand for Jesus was causing. It was a backlash from the culture because although Judaism wasn't the main religion of Rome, Judaism was legal in Rome. It was legal in the Roman-ruled world, yet Christianity was illegal, and so there was this sense that as they were looking to Jesus, they were almost looking back and going, do we just go back to where we were? It was easier. We didn't have the persecution. We could live our lives and we could do the things that we want to do without having to work through all of these things. And so they were looking back. They were distracted. They were taking their eyes off of Jesus, and they were neglecting to run after them, after him. And brothers, I, I wonder for us if distraction has slipped into our lives and caused us to slow down in our Christian life. Hebrews 12.1, we see just a few pages over, the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, every sin which so easily clings to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see, this verse reminds us that something doesn't have to be outright sin for it to be a weight in our lives. There could be things in our lives, even good things, that become ultimate things that become a distraction to the main thing. And I wonder for us how many distractions have come in unnoticed, unkept, whether it's things through media that we've just allowed to kind of (laughs) form us and shape us. We have these little distraction devices that we carry around with us all the time, don't we? I mean, I I don't know, maybe you guys have your phones just dialed in on lock and they're never a distraction to you. But I, I can just say, like, man, the, phone, the phone's a big distraction. The phone is a, it, it just has so many different places that, that, that it could take us. And it could take us out of what God has for us. I like what author John Ortberg says about this. For many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith, it is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We'll just skim our lives instead of actually living them. You know, it's no shock we live in a distracted world. We know, as, as I'm sure you've seen or heard, our attention is a commodity and companies are vying for it all the time. Man is inventing, and really good at inventing, new and exciting things that can fill our time but deplete our purpose. And men, it's so important that we do what we need to do to not let it be said that we wasted our lives. To not let it said that we lived a life of continual distraction. Because I think the default in our culture today is to be distracted. I think it takes a heart and intentionality to say that's not going to be me. I'm not going to be the friend that, that, that isolates, that, that goes into my own corner, that gets distracted. I'm not going to be the dad that, that is on his phone all the time when my kids are wanting to engage with me or my wife is wanting to talk to me. I'm not going to be the person that, instead of turning to the spiritual disciplines, looks at the news for the day and lets that set the tone for my day. We've got to be men that look forward, that don't look back, that don't get distracted. Maybe you've heard the story of Roger Bannister. He was the first man in the world to run a mile under four minutes in May 1954. The next month, Australian John Landy broke that record by 1.4 seconds. So in August of 1954, the two fastest mile runners in the world met for a historic race at the British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada. The race was dubbed the Miracle Mile. As Bannister and Landy turned for the last lap, Landy was ahead. He looked certain to win, but as he neared the finishing line, he lost focus. He allowed his mind to wonder about Bannister's position. Unable to stand the strain, he finally looked back over his shoulder, and as he did, so his stride faltered, and Bannister passed him to break the tape. Landy later said, I have, I would have won the race if I hadn't looked back, if I hadn't taken my eyes off the goal. From photographs, Vancouver sculptor John, or excuse me, Jack Harmon crafted a bronze sculpture of the two men, captured at the critical moment. You can look it up on, on Google. It stood at the entrance of the Empire Stadium until the stadium was demolished and now stands at the entrance of the Pacific National Exhibition. Landy says of his sculpture, while Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt for looking back, I'm probably the only one ever turned into bronze for looking back. (laughs) At least he had a sense of humor. But man, how many times have we taken our eyes off the goal, been distracted, and then know the consequence of doing that? Man, for us men, the stakes are high, aren't they? We look around, we see... People that are going before us, man, that, that are getting distracted and where that leads. And just one step away, maybe it doesn't look like a big deal, but man, one step away and, and another step away. Over time, you end up in a totally different place. Let it not be said of us. So what's the antidote? What does the author here of Hebrews lay out for those Jewish believers and for us who, who may be prone to distraction? Look at it with me in verse 22. He says it. it's beautiful. Let us, let us draw near let us draw near. Guys, this is an invitation to know the God of the universe in a deep and personal way, to center our lives around Jesus, what he's done for us. Drawing near speaks to our never-ending pursuit of intimacy with our Savior. Again, Hebrews 12, but verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers, it's all about Jesus. In a very real sense, our calling is to be distracted by Jesus, <laughs> to be caught up by him, to let him be the thing that, that marks our day, that sets the tone in our lives. I love Brother Lawrence's um, great work practicing the presence of God. Brother Lawrence was just this real radical 17th century monk and he wrote about God's presence in his life as something that, that, as he would say, I'm never not with the Lord. He's everywhere and always with me. It's me that forgets and neglects his place and presence in my life. And in that very small book, Lawrence just talks about how building an awareness and a sensitivity to God's closeness and availability and presence to him really has the capacity, has the, the opportunity, if you will, to just govern all of our lives, all of our days, even doing the dishes, (laughs) which is a place that actually uh, Lawrence talks about in his book. The antidote to distraction is drawing near. James 4, 8, beautiful verse, you know, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Funny story about this verse. I was um, communicating, and my Jeff knows this one. I was communicating with a girl when I was like 12 or 13. Communicating, that sounds so archaic, but um, we were pin pals. It was before the days of cell phones, right? And I was writing her notes, and we met at a Christian camp, and you know, it was one of those things. I was like, this girl's kind of cool. I'm gonna just kind of see where she's at. And you know, I was, grew up in a Christian home, um, loved God, but um, I knew I wanted to marry a good Christian gal, so I was always including a little verse in my letter, right, before I sent it. Okay, she just needs to know I'm a biblical dude. I remember one time, like, I I think I was, like, late on responding to a letter from her, so I was like, oh, I got to include a verse, you know, and so I grabbed one of these books that says God's promises, and it's just all these verses listed out, you know, have you seen those? So I grabbed this verse, James 4.8, but I didn't write out the verse. I just gave the, I gave the scripture reference, James 4.8, sent that out. I said, man, she's going to think I'm so spiritual, well, she writes back and I think she goes through the letter. I remember a PS at the end. She's like, Hey, by the way, what was that James 4 8 all about? Do you want to tell me something? Did God show you something about my life? So I look at the verse, right? James 4 8 in its in its full context. You guys maybe know this one, right? So the first part, man, so encouraging, so great. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here's the second part I forgot about. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you (laughs) double-minded. So just don't don't try to front, all right? Especially if you're dating a a Christian gal. I mean, just be honest with you because eventually it's going to come out. Okay. (laughs) Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. No, I just, I love the picture of what what God does when when we draw near to him. It's, it's, It's like the story of the prodigal son. Do you remember that? The son that took his father's wealth and he went and spent it on, you know, licentious living. He just, anything you could want to do, he went and he did. And he came to the end and realized, what, what, what is this? This is empty. And he started coming back and he just thought, man, I just want to be a servant. I want to be a slave in my father's house. At least I hope he takes me back that way. But remember, the scripture says, beautiful, while he was still a far way off, the father sees his son coming and he runs after him. You see, how many times did that son rehearse the, his, his speech to his dad? And, and, and I think that the, the father running towards him, I think in a way it was the father just wanting to close the gap between how much that son was under condemnation and guilt and shame. He wanted to get to him as quickly as he could to just remind him of his grace and his mercy. And I think the Lord does that for us. When we draw near to him, when we, we take that step, it's amazing how the Lord draws near to us. All throughout scripture, we see this, that, that God is a God who wants to be with his people, whether it's in the, the, the first chapters in the Bible in Eden, or it's in the tabernacle with the children of Israel, or even in the temple in Jerusalem. We have a God who established covenants with his people to be with them and to be known by them. And it was man that ultimately did not keep the end of the covenant, ultimately resulting in separation from him. But in the fullness of time, God himself became a man. He took on the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He left his place to come to our place, to take our place, so that we could be with him in his place. And the story of Scripture culminates in the day when a voice will declare from the throne over a renewed heaven and earth, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. That's the end of the story. We, we've read the back of the book. We know how it ends. And what we're invited to be a part of, men, until then, is to experience the kingdom of God here on this earth through com- communion with Christ. So how do we approach him? How are we to draw near? Well, notice these four things. With a true heart, it says, in verse 22. I think this speaks to the sincerity and humility that we are to have before the Lord. You know, it was said of the Old Testament people that they did draw near to him with their mouth, and they honored him with their lips, but their heart was often far from him. This speaks to the need for us to come with an honest heart in confession and humility. You see, the enemy is going to try to keep you from drawing near. Because he's going to try to cause us to think, man, the sin in your heart, the sin in your life is going to keep God from you. And in a sense, there is a, a, a break in communion, but that sin should never cause us to not draw near to him in confession and repentance. In fact, it should bring us before him because it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And as the writer of Hebrews is showing us, he has done the work for us to be able to enter into that holy place to be able to meet with him. Brothers, he knows our hearts. Come into his presence with a true heart, ready to confess your sins and receive his forgiveness. Secondly, we're to come in full assurance of faith, even though we're to approach him with humility and can do so boldly. we, We have a confidence in his promises and a firm conviction that because of his grace we'll be welcomed in. It's not our confidence in ourselves, but in his goodness with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. This can be true because we are in Christ. When we trust Christ, his blood is applied to our account. Figuratively speaking, we sprinkle our hearts with it just as the Israelites sprinkled their doors with the blood of the Passover lamb. I think it speaks to our need for ongoing repentance. As Martin Luther said, repentance for the believer is a way of life. It's just something that we do all the time as we come before him. Finally, our bodies washed with pure water. I think this is a beautiful picture, of the work of sanctification that God accomplishes in our lives. All of these, the coming before him with a true heart and full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled, our bodies washed. Notice that this involves every part of us. And we, need to, we need to adopt a holistic discipleship that doesn't just have to do with our minds, but our hearts and our bodies as well adopting practices that in a sense recalibrate our hearts transform our minds and train our bodies so friends if the sickness or poison is distraction the remedy the antidote is to draw near okay what was the second thing that these early believers were facing and what is something that we too often face from the enemy i believe it was deception deception that lie that following christ and being all in for jesus is not worth it it's too hard you, you, don't, don't even try. Don't, don't give it your all. Yeah, those crazy Christians, those kind of freaky Christians, they're there to do that. The people that, that work at a church, you know, they can do that. But for me, I, I'm just going to kind of go at it slow. Jesus, Jesus is a great addition, but, but I'm not going to go all in. As these Jewish believers were facing trials and hardship because of, because of their belief in Christ, there were some that were considering abandoning the faith altogether, the writer of Hebrews, talks about this. In a sense, some of these Jewish believers were trying to figure out if they should fold or just take their chips and walk away. A life without Christ seemed easier. Some were being pulled away and deceived and believing that they knew what was best for them. And the devil hasn't really changed his game, has he? He's doing the same thing to, to men today. You see, the first thing that Satan caused into question or called into question was God's word. Has God really said This same lie is being peddled all over, and men are eating it up left and right. Whether it's the lie for us as men that we can be the captains of our own destiny, that we can be the masters of our universe, the root of this deception is, hey, you decide what is true and right for you. You're in control. Ultimately making us our own lords. And in his book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer describes just succinctly the battle that we are in and and the, the, the true enemies of our soul being the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the tactics that they use against us. And I like the way that he puts this. He says, they work together to launch an assault on us in the form of deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires that are normalized by the fallen world around us these deceptive ideas really about who we are and what we need. And these lies play to our disordered desires, that that, that fleshly part of us. And then they're normalized by the fallen world around us. The world would say, that's completely normal. That's okay. The thing about this war that we find ourselves in, it's a war of the mind. It's the war of the spirit He goes on to say, John Mark Comer, it's a war on lies, and the problem is less that we tell lies and more that we live them. We let false narratives about reality into our bodies, and they wreak havoc in our souls. So how do we fight this deception? What's the antidote? Well, look at verse 23 with me. What does the writer of Hebrews say? Again, let us hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What an encouragement. Men, hold fast. That means to keep secure, to keep firm possession of. What are we to hold fast to? We're to hold fast to the glorious gospel that has been once and all delivered for the saints. To be men that believe in the sense that we put our weight upon, knowing that it's our only hope. Now, I've got a, a, two boys, Cannon who's nine, Crew who's four. Crew's kind of going through this, this stage where, you know... Um, you know, for, for the dads in here, you know that stage where you, you carry your kids around a lot in public, and yet you realize like, hey, you're getting big enough to where I want you to walk by my side. He's kind of in that zone right now. So a lot of the times, I mean, I think he would want me to carry him until he was like 15, but he's just got a tender heart. But so we've been walking a lot together, and, 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 and crew is so good at looking for dad's hand. He just wants my hand when we're walking in public, when we're walking in a, in a parking lot. Yesterday, we were in Costco, and it was just immediate, just like, give me your hand, Dad. <laughs> and I know, I know that, that right when Crew grabs my hand, he's holding on really tight. He's holding on really tight. He's looking around. He's taking stock of everything. He, like, he knows weird people pretty well. He's just like, Dad, I'm looking at everybody. I'm keeping an eye out. But I know eventually what happens is Crew just kind of lets me hold his hand. Crew goes from, I'm holding dad's hand, I'm a little concerned, I'm a little worried about this, but there comes a point where I could just feel, he just kind of lets up, and he kind of realizes, like, dad's got my hand. And I think that's kind of the idea with hold fast. You know, when we hold fast to the gospel, man, when we, we commit to not wavering, to not to not going astray, to not being what James describes as the double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. We're holding on tight. There are gonna be seasons where we are gripping. It's just like, Lord, I, I, I gotta believe. I, I gotta put my faith in you. That there, I know there's nothing greater. But man, the more that we hold on, the more that we're gonna realize that we're not holding on to it. It's holding on to us. It's gripping to us. It's supporting us to hold fast to keep possession of. What is the possession? How are we to hold fast? It's the confession of our hope. This speaks of our hope being Christ. What other hope do we have in this world? We're exhorted not to waver. We need to be rooted. That means planting roots deep to be like that giant oak that doesn't sway, that doesn't move. Now, I'm not saying that we never have questions and we never have doubts, but we hold on We do what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, to present yourself, to do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So men, we become men of the word. (laughs) We become men that hold fast to the gospel, that know why we're saved. We know what we're saved from and what we're saved to. We hold on when the enemy tries to lie to us and move us away from the truth of the gospel. We hold on when sin presents itself and promises us the thing that we've been longing for. We hold on when friends and family and those around us are wavering. Why? He says it there in verse 23, for he who promised is faithful. Don't doubt him. What else does he need to do to prove that he is faithful other than giving his own life for you? This is a reminder that we aren't living merely for this earth. We're living For eternity. Hold fast. Okay, last one. I think the third thing the enemy was using against these early believers and us, something that I think we're all too familiar with, is discouragement. Discouragement. You see, these believers, as I said, were facing pretty serious trials and persecution. Discouragement started to set in. And one of the main issues that came out of this is isolation loneliness, and a moving away and avoidance of the fellowship of the believers. At the very time they needed it most, they neglected fellowship. You may have heard this story. I've shared it before. But it was advertised that the devil was putting up for sale all of his tools. On that day, the tools were laid out. They had prices marked on them for public inspection. And there were a lot of treacherous instruments, hatred, envy, jealousy, deceit, pride, lying, lust, and so on. But laid apart from the rest of the devil's tools was a tool, but it was worn more than any of the tools, and it was priced very high. What's the name of this tool? asked one of the customers. That, the devil replied, is discouragement. But why have you priced it so high? Because discouragement is more useful to me than all the others. I can pry open and get into a man's heart with that when I cannot get near him with any other tools. It's badly worn because I use it on almost everyone since so few people know it belongs to me. Last night, Zach prayed and asked for those men that were feeling weary to stand, to receive the refreshment of the Lord. And friends, I know that there are different seasons in our life, and you may be in a season right, right now where discouragement is weighing heavy upon you. For some, it's the struggle with that same sin. Just when you think you've found victory, it rears its ugly head. And the discouragement over, is "Is this going to be my story? Is this going to be the way that it is? Maybe it's discouragement from where you are in life, thinking, gosh, I thought my life would look different than it is right now. I thought I'd be in a different place. Maybe it's just discouragement from how slow the sanctification process is going in your life. Lord, I thought I'd be further down that path than I am right now. Although there are many reasons we get discouraged, our enemy loves to capitalize on it and drive us further into isolation, loneliness, and despair. What's the antidote to this toxin? What's the antidote to this poison that the author lays out? Look with me, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more you see the day drawing near. This is what our weekend's about, isn't it? To be reminded that we're not alone. Because discouragement will tell you, you're alone, no one will know, no one will understand, no one misses you when you're gone. Why why try? Why keep going? Why persevere? Is it really worth it? But friends, the antidote to this idea is to embrace community, to move forward, to go in when everything inside causes us to feel like we're just going to stay home. We're going to just kind of be on our own. We're going to let Netflix soothe us to sleep once more. You see, God has provided for us an antidote to discouragement in each other. In fact, this word encouragement, it really means to call alongside, right? That Greek word. It's as if we're walking on the road and we see a brother. We see someone who has gone off the path and we call them alongside as we are pursuing Jesus. Come back. Come on. Yeah, it's hard, but it's going to be okay because we're in it together. As Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10 says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. Brothers, we don't run solo. You aren't fighting as one. You have a team. You have companions. You are part of a brotherhood, a bond that goes thicker than family lines, even the Scriptures say. As we've seen these these challenges, these exhortations, these let us statements, it, it, it speaks to it's not now you, it's let us. This is meant to be a group effort. There's some 71 and others in the New Testament. In fact, this is one of them. This is the only time in this Hebrews book that the author uses the words "one another." And for some of us, we read this and we hear this, and you know, you've got all the reasons why you're not a people person. I've taken all the tests, Pastor Matt, I'm an introvert, like that's off the page, like off the scale. It falls off the cliff. <laughs> I hear you. My encouragement to you, don't let that hold you back. Us men, we're great at making excuses. If I I might be so bold bold because we're commanded to stir each other up. The word that says stir, it literally means to incite a riot. Some of you just kind of need to like be stirred up. (laughs) You need a riot to be incited in your life, to to remind you that, hey, God has good things for you. And part of the process of you walking in the good things that he has is to invite others into your life to stir you up. To act like the spurs that the cowboys would have that, that kick against the, the horses. I, I'm not a cowboy. I've never really ran. I don't even know if I said the right thing. But you know what I mean. Those clanky things that you walk around with. We got to act like that. As a brother is, is, is falling asleep, and maybe literally right now. But uh, as a brother is, is going down that road, going off the path, that we would act like the spurs to get him back on. Come on. It's going to be okay. John Tyson, um, one of my favorite authors and, uh, and teachers right now, he, he wrote a book called The Intentional Father, which any dads here that have young kids, I highly encourage you to check it out. Just be aware, it's, it's, it's a pretty lofty um, uh, a book that he, he basically lays out a plan for discipling our kids, but but just take it before the Lord and, and um, understanding that John Tyson is a unique character himself. So. Well, one of the particular areas he, he lays out, um, as he did research for um, writing about manhood and masculinity, there there were five definitive things that he saw um, almost every culture in time has used to shape boys into men, and, and the five things are this: life is hard, you're not important, your life is not about you, you are not in control, and you are going to die. All right. <laughs> all throughout life, like those are the things that, that men, that young boys have had to learn and grow in, right, as they have transitioned into being men. I like how, how Tyson puts it, though. He puts a little spin on it, and I, I feel like these five things, these shifts that he lays out, these are visions that God has for us that we should adopt in our own lives, and as brothers, that we can incite and inspire each other. Here, here's the first one, a shift from ease to difficulty. As boys, we like things easy, but as men, we embrace difficulty. Two, boys care about themselves, but men care about others. That I'd be willing to take a back seat in order to serve someone else. Number three, you're part of the story, but you're not the whole story. Ooh, we need to be reminded of that, don't we? Especially if you're a young dad and you come home and, man, you've just worked a long day. The last thing that you want to do is get down on the floor, change a poopy diaper, whatever it may be. I mean, you may have a poopy diaper after, you know, whatever you've done. But it, you get home, you want to crash. Maybe your dad, he, he, he had an example in your home of coming home, turning on the TV and, and grabbing the newspaper. His mom did all the work. But it's not about us. We're part of the story. We get to serve. We get to spend our lives Number four, from control to surrender. Number five, a shift from temporal to eternal. These are the things we need to remind ourselves of, brothers. Can I just share real real quickly a practical thing that for me has been so helpful Pastor Nate talked about our life group ministry, and we're going to have a table out there in the hallway if you're interested in learning more about life groups. In fact, I think we have some root beer to give away. If you've never signed up for a life group and you make a verbal commitment to sign it, this is like Costco renewing your membership. You get a flat of water. We're going to give you a four-pack of root beer. Um, so talk to Daniel about that. But another thing that we do here, uh, we call growth groups. These are, are groups that are with men with men, a group of three to five men that meet weekly, around um, three rhythms, scripture, sharing, and prayer. And I've been meeting with the same um, two guys for about two years now, and guys, it has been so life-giving to me, to weekly, 6 a.m. on Zoom, Friday mornings. I hate Zoom, but I love it because it allows me to connect with these guys in a way that is practical for us. We get together, we have synced our Bible reading, so we talk about the same passages that we read during the week, pull out Encouragements, applications. And then we share about our lives. In our sharing time, we ask three questions. What good fruit did you see in your life this week? What bad fruit? And what's been hard? And through those three questions, we're able to really kind of talk about, man, these are the things that are happening in our lives. We can hold each other accountable. We can recognize these areas of our life where, oh man, we are, we are, we are looking for ease rather than embracing the challenge and the difficulty. We're looking for control rather than surrendering to Christ. And then we close in prayer and we pray for one another. And man, how life-giving it has been to have brothers challenge me, to have brothers keeping me accountable in the Word. I encourage you to check it out. We have um, in our recommended links in the back of your notebook um, a link to, uh, uh, to the page where you can learn more about it. It's really nothing that we organize. We just kind of give you the tool and say, go for it. Find some friends, find some brothers, maybe even from this conference. But guys, God's plan for the world, his plan for you is community. His plan for us is to be a counterculture to what the world is offering. The world looks at friendships. It looks at relationships as, what's in it for me? It doesn't look and say, what can I give? How can I be a brother that spurs someone on to love and good works? See, the good news of the gospel lived out in community by people who are all in on Jesus becomes such a powerful force for this next generation to see. When the people of God live and love like Jesus, there is something so powerful and the world can't compete with it. It becomes a light to those that are outside the church to see there's something unique about this group of people. They're not all the same, but they believe in Jesus and they have a hope that's real. I'll close with this story. Again, that author John Tyson, he tells the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who many of you know about his life. He was a German pastor and theologian, and he lived during the reign of Hitler and the Nazi regime. Bonhoeffer was a radical man who who came from wealth and, and was brilliant, and had aspirations, and his family had aspirations that he would be a very successful professor and teacher and academic. But Bonhoeffer had a vision of a new monasticism, and he decided to start an underground seminary in a remote place called Finkenwald in Poland. It was a place for young 20-something men who he wanted to train to learn theology in the way of Jesus. It was essentially a course on the Sermon on the Mount where they would live out the teachings of Jesus pretty radically. It's from this that he wrote his book, The Cost of Discipleship. There he had his students live in community and take part in daily rhythms of life and prayer, which is also spelled out in his book. Life together. So the story goes that as he was leading this underground seminary, a family friend came to visit to kind of speak sense into him. What 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 is he doing? I mean, he's he's going away from a life that that easily could have been successful to do this, this pet project. What in the world is he doing? So this man comes to Bonhoeffer, basically says, What are you thinking? You're going out here, giving your life, come back, get married, have a reasonable life and career. And Bonhoeffer quietly says, come with me. Story goes, they get in a boat. They row across the lake that Finkenwald was by. And there was a hill on the other side. They hike up to the top of the hill. And on the other side of the hill was a Nazi military base. Planes and tanks coming in and out. And there was a Nazi youth camp there. Hitler youth were marching. The story goes that Bonhoeffer pointed across the lake to Finkenwald, And he said, this must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. And brothers, in our day, our discipleship to Jesus, our commitment to Christ, it must be stronger than that. Whatever that represents for you, whatever that thing is that's keeping you from going all in, To return to that poker analogy, why is it that someone would put all their chips in to the middle of the table? It's because they believe in their hand. They believe that what they have is a winner and that causes them to say, I'm laying it all on the line. Do you believe that what you have in your hand, in in the person and the work of Jesus, is so good that you'd be willing to put the chips in the middle? I pray we will.